Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Adam Ludgate. Adam is a technical leader who is involved in the startup tech community and is enticed by new and innovative ways of solving problems with technology. He has worked previously with the likes of IBM Canada, AOL UK, tech startups in London's Silicon Roundabout, as well as in a variety of oil and gas software firms in various software development and leadership capacities. In this episode, Adam interviews Scott Grevel from Atabotics. Take it away, Adam. Hi, I'm your host, Adam Ludgate, and today I am speaking with Scott Gravel. He's the CEO and co-founder of Adabotics. Good morning. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this chat. I know you're a mega busy guy um, and a lot of, have a lot on your plate, so I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, so just to kick the conversation off, let's hear a little bit about you, about your background, you know, your early beginnings in career and, and what you led, led you up to, to where you are now at the chair at Adabotics. It's your typical, you know, path, you know, a degree in nursing followed by cabinet making leading to tech entrepreneur, you know, um, I'm the least qualified person on the planet to have my job. If you look at my resume, um, my background was really in building things. Uh, I, I left university, um, and then went into new home construction and cabinet making and eventually made skateboards. And uh, none of that necessarily prepared you to be the CTO of a robotics company. Um, a little ADHD probably helped, you know, a voracious learner. Um, but after, after the skateboard business, um, I had created a digitally integrated manufacturing environment here in Calgary. And um, then I started just getting farmed out to companies that were implementing digital manufacturing technologies and wanted some help. So. I started consulting the manufacturing industry. And it was in during that that I got the crazy idea for, for Atabotics. And uh, I spent then two years trying to find reasons not to do it because it scared the shit out of me. You know, after having a failed skateboard business, you know, where you're, you're trying to sell to, to skate shops, you know, a good order was five grand. And now you're thinking you're going to invent a robotics technology where you're going to sell to Fortune 500 companies and you know purchase orders in the millions or tens of millions of dollars. It was a bit of a bit of a leap, but I was never, I don't know, I was never your typical, if there is such a thing. And uh, but I do believe that passionate, smart people can accomplish anything. And uh, I was fortunate to surround myself with a bunch of those people. So it was safe to say you haven't been seconded to administer COVID vaccine with your, your educational background? Uh, no, I, I, finished, I finished nursing but never worked as a nurse because at the time, the Alberta healthcare system was going through a downsize. So there was, there was no jobs for new grads. Okay. I've, I've, done, I've done needles, but I'm no, longer, I'm no longer certified. So it's been a while. All right. I won't call you then. Um. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, let's talk a little more about how, how you know, you, you mentioned a little bit how you kind of came up with the idea of Atabotics, but, you know, kind of what was the, what was the tripping point or where was the, the gap that you, that was really obvious to you that you went for? I mean, I think we all assume that the future will be 
um, automatic that we'll always see more robotics. We'll see more automation. We'll all see that, but we don't necessarily see how it's going to happen or what the specific actions need to be taken to make that happen. So, you know, what, what triggered that within you? Well, it didn't happen at all. Like you just described. Okay. That's the first thing I'll say is, um, and one of, one of the things that, you know, it's interesting. I've never been asked this question this way, but one of the things I'm most kind of proud of is that Atabotics wasn't a, a technology developed in a garage or a lab or a university that went looking for a problem, which is, I think, most typically of most technology startups. This started with the problem. You know, I was introduced to the problem when I actually was trying to create a buffer system for a manufacturing line. And um, I designed something that looked a lot like that um, picture puzzle tile game we all had as kids where there's one missing tile and you have to slide it around to complete the picture. So I was looking for some high density racking and I found a company that, you know, made robots that move shelves. So I called them and I still owe the, the receptionist from Kiva Systems a commission check, I think. Because she just said, thank you, we're no longer accepting inquiries and hung up on me. And I have like no experience in supply chain. Like I said, I used to build skateboards and work in healthcare. And um, when I started looking at, at why Kiva didn't want my business, and well, it made sense as soon as I discovered that Amazon just paid over three quarters of a billion dollars for them and they were busy. But then I started looking at the problem of supply chain. Why did Amazon buy a robotics company? What was the problem they were trying to solve? And the problem in case in this is a massive change in consumer behavior. E-com was growing. And the technology used to send stuff to the store does not support sending individual items to you. It's that simple. The technology built to send a case of t-shirts once a week to the back room of a store doesn't get your t-shirt out same day with, with your, you know, I don't know, your, sh- your shaving lotion and a, a set of snap washers. The variability is huge. So I started looking at that problem and going, okay, how do you, how would you solve this problem? Now, I was either naive enough or stupid enough, I don't know which one, depends on who you ask, to actually start with a blank sheet of paper on a whole new hardware platform. And that that idea right there was the challenging one, uh, especially the challenging one to sell to investors. But by starting with a blank sheet of paper, I I just told myself that I'm sure nature already has this problem figured out. And I went looking. And I just kept looking and looking and was frustrated that I didn't find anything um, until I saw a little documentary on leaf cutter ants and a, a guy, a researcher named Dr. Walter Chinkle was pouring molten aluminum down a leaf cutter ant colony in the jungle to excavate the inside of that colony to see what it looked like. And uh, in seeing that excavation, that aluminum casting, uh, the aha moment happened. And that was, how does the world change if we access stuff vertically versus horizontally? The common thread in everything that I saw that I was researching for automated systems was they were still human-centric. They were still an automated version of the environment that we exist in, like the grocery store. You know, rows and aisles. Because we walk on the floor, we drive on the floor, we need to access things from a two-dimensional plane. But, but ants don't. 
And so when I saw that, I, I grabbed my old business cards and I ripped them all up into in half. And if we ever have a chance to meet face to face, which I hope we do, I'll give you one of my business cards and they're half the size of a normal business card. And that's not to be cute. It's not because it matches the logo. It's because it is the origin story of antibiotics is playing with the little business cards and rearranging them on the tabletop on, on the table that's right behind me in our chat, actually. That led to a whole new geometry. That new geometry led to a new type of robotics platform and a new way of thinking about operating a fulfillment center for each items. And that's the difference, each item versus cases. And um, basically, I can credit all of our innovation. Um, and then to ants, and I'm very, very thankful they don't carry copyright lawyers. Um, because we rip, we rip them off and we continue to rip them off. And there's something beautiful about taking a very simple organism, but on mass and, and giving it a simple set of rules, each one to interact. But out of that comes from very complex behaviors that don't necessarily need to be managed. They just evolve. And that's a fascinating journey for us to see how that mindset continues to evolve the technology. But it started. It started with a problem. The problem is we buy more stuff online and the technology to actually fulfill upon that really didn't exist. So we built it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for the insight. And so, so the idea that you've just described, the problem that you described and the solution that's currently operating on warehouse floors today, are those two the same mm -hmm. or uh, the pit, were there any pivots? Um, no, no substantial pivots, which is amazing. I think that's, that's a testament to the two years I spent looking for reasons not to do it. Uh, Atabotics was, was well validated before we ever, you know, started making metal shavings. The, the idea is instead of going through different stages and steps, can we store it? Can we sequence it, sort it, deliver it? then get the order belt, you know, pack it and get it sorted to a door for shipping all in one system. Now, us as a technology company hasn't pivoted, but some of our clients don't necessarily use the technology the way it was intended. That's been an interesting learning is the amount of inertia that exists out there in, in the old ways. You know, this is, this is how we've always done it. Um, but that's, that's evolving as the problem continues to go. And um, there's a lot of brilliant people out there figuring out how to navigate through a challenging time. And, you know, we're glad that we, we just, you know, put a tool in, you know, another arrow in their quiver to kind of work with. Um, but the, the complete, the complete, you know, soup to nuts beginning to end vision hasn't changed. That's very unusual. I think that's great. And yeah, probably probably definitely speaks to having a lot of background thought and forethought. And one of the things that they, um, they talk to you when you do a computer science degree, you know, the young developers are always eager to get their fingers wet on the code, right? And, and start writing code right away. And they tell you, you should spend a significant of your amount of your time in advance um, thinking about what you're going to do before you do it. And that seems to be, seems to have definitely been the, the same case for you here. Yeah, but it was, understand, it was based out of fear. It was, there's got to be a damn reason I shouldn't do this. Because I was afraid. There's got to be a reason I shouldn't do this. If someone had thought of it, the IP wasn't defensible, customers wouldn't want it, it wouldn't work. Like, there had to be a reason. Yeah. 
And um, I never found it, but I wouldn't let fear be one of those reasons. Yeah. So I kind of, I wouldn't say I was pulled into this kicking and screaming, but I was pulled into this very cautious and afraid. Cool. Well, I'm glad you made the, I'm glad you took the gamble. Yeah. So, so good so far, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's not over yet. So, but. so the actual, the actual physical hardware itself, I want to talk about that for people who don't know much about it. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got, you've got lots of good, good publication online and you can have and see what, see what's out there, but you know, talk about it a little bit about like power, power function, you know, how fast do these things move? Do they, do you have to charge them? Do they, sure. how often do you have to charge them? Like all those, sure. all those things. Yeah. Uh, we had a complex set of kind of design constraints and I spent at least a year, at least a year trying to figure out how to overcome them and uh, mechanically, you know, and controls. Right. So the robot is a 12 axis like CNC machine. It was, it was built to kind of function on the same idea of, of subroutines with variables that CNC's function. Um, it has eight drive motors. It's got a motor that turns a turret. It's got a motor that picks the bin. It's got a motor that adjusts um, the, the, the track width of the robot. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. And it's got eight drive wheels, uh, four four in X direction, four in Y direction. And one of those set of drive wheels also has a vertical axis up and down. So sounds very complicated. A lot of the robots we end up kind of getting compared to sometimes have three motors, you know, two, two drive wheels and some actuator motor. So it's a complex kind of dance of mechatronics in the robot itself. But the reason we have that is ours is the first robot that actually can move in three dimensions. Um, so it climbs and moves in X axes and Y axes. So the way the cycle works, let's start at you just finished with a bin at a pick station. Somebody's taken something out that they need. That robot then navigates over to what we call an upshaft, which uh, has bus bars in it. We, that's the only place we give power to the robot. And um, it transitions from moving horizontally to get ready to climb vertically. Uh, when we move horizontally, we're driving on four wheels at a time. The X wheels or the Y wheels. When we climb, we climb with all eight wheels. We pinch, we pinch the corners, basically. And so we transition the, the chassis into a mode to climb vertically, which means we narrow the track width and we, um, raise what we raise the, the set of, the set of dynamic drives, we call it. And then we engage with the bus bar. Now the robots don't have batteries in them. They run off a big set of ultra capacitors. For for the for the tech near nerds out there, we have a hundred farad cap bank in the robot. We fondly refer to that as the electric bomb because there's enough energy in that to weld plate steel, you know, for a second. But nice thing about ultra caps is that they they don't store energy in a chemical reaction, so they don't really get hot. They're a solid state. They, they don't degrade really over time. They're rated a million charge cycles. And I think it's because you've rated down a number bigger than that. It sounds stupid. Um, but as they're climbing from the bottom to the top, we charge them. Um, we could deliver up to 100 amps to the robot as they climb, but they, uh, they need 30 to climb plus whatever they need to charge. So when they get to the top of the structure now, 
they're fully charged. They're ready to go on their mission. As they're climbing, that's a window. We look at them as an available resource for the next routing, you know, and the scheduling of what needs to be done. And when they get to the top, they transition from vertical to horizontal, and then they drive across the top of the structure in an XY pattern. It's actually, from for the nerds out there, it's a derivative of A-star Manhattan as a routing algorithm. But we route them over to the, the vertical shaft that has the bin that they need next time, the one they're tasked now to go get. The way we arrange the storage is we have vertical shafts that have bins around four sides of that vertical shaft. It's not like either side of an aisle. It's, it's we got those four quadrants. And in a full height structure, there's 96 bin positions per vertical, 24 up each side. But one of them is empty. Doesn't matter which one, but in that column, one of those positions is empty. Uh, and that's true in every, every vertical shaft. Um, the robot always has a bin on it, except for a very, very small amount of time. So we go to what we, we need next and we transition now from horizontal to vertical. And we're going to descend down to the, where the, that open position is, an empty position. And that's where we're going to put the bin that we have. Things never go back where they came from. And it's interesting over time how that ends up self-sorting the, the, uh, uh, the inventory off of popularity. But we go put the bin away and then we're going to go get the bin that we need next. Now, interestingly, the only time the robot ever has to climb under its own power, stored, stored energy, is when it's empty in one of these verticals, if need be. So it may climb up to whatever level and, and then face whatever direction it needs to go get the target bin. It retrieves that target bin and in doing so, creating the, a new empty position for the next robot that comes through. So now we're going to descend out the bottom. An interesting thing, we capture all the regen energy as we fall from top to bottom. So, so when the robot comes at the bottom, um, it's pretty close to fully charged. Nice. Again. And now we're going to navigate that robot to anywhere on the perimeter that it's needed. And it's not going to go back to the necessarily the place it came from. It's going to go back to the pick station that needs what it has. And because we're on not on a linear path, they're driving on a grid again underneath the structure is there's no fixed route to get from where they are to where they need to be. So that creates a lot of routing flexibilities and it allows us to take the three items that you've ordered is 2.6, 2.8 is kind of your average e-com order. The three items that you've ordered and deliver them all to one place at the same time on three different robots in three different bins. So when they get there, um, we drive them through the pick station and uh, a person or a robot arm technology we don't, you know, we didn't develop, but partner with. Um, we'll pick those items out and put them in a container so it can be shipped to you. And um, now we're done. And that robot now goes back up, goes, gets its next bin, puts the one it's got away, and it just keeps going on and on and on. So what makes our solution interesting is... We have the highest storage density in the industry um, per square foot of floor space. But some of our competitors, you know, claim 100% storage density, but they only get five meters tall. We, we have 80% storage density at eight meters of storage. 
in a standard kind of height warehouse. So we could actually put more goods in the same square footage of anybody else. And, and we can do it without needing to move something to get to something else. And that's a big thing. We don't like bury stuff. So, and any one of our robots can go get any one of our bins from any location and deliver to any location. There's great flexibility there. But it's also the combination of having the high storage density and the fact now that there doesn't need to be a secondary process, a downstream process to sort it, to sequence it, to collate it. That all happens within the same footprint. So we built it to be a pick engine for discrete picking of, of, of e-com orders. And we're not trying to modify its functionality from stuff that was designed to move cases. And in that, that cycle, so 3D robotics, a unique geometry, unique racking, unique bins, like we bit off a lot saying we're going to develop all of this because we didn't take anything that was already sitting on the shelf. But I will say that the robot is a unique combination of proven technologies. We didn't invent gearboxes. We didn't invent linear slides. We didn't invent that stuff. We didn't invent a motion control system. We, we just put it together in a pretty snug little package. You're an innovator. I'm a, I'm a tinkerer. Yeah, I've, I've, always, <laughs> I've always wanted to invent things. And I, I see myself as a creative problem solver is, is the way I see it. But. Well, that's a really great description. I appreciate you breaking it down in such detail because I think that'll be helpful for a lot of people to, to really understand in detail how it all works. And so what, uh, just for my own curiosity, um, how fast can these things go and what, uh, what are the weight restrictions? You know, I mean, you're, you're dealing with e-com, which is typically not huge, heavy things, but I'm sure you've run up against this at some point. I'd be curious about that. Well, interestingly, the, the robots were designed to carry 120-pound payload. A robot can actually lift, a robot can lift me, about 190 pounds. Depends on how fast you want to accelerate and how fast you want to go, but they, they, they have the power to lift me. Um, a bin, the biggest challenge has been actually a bin that supports 120 pounds without big deflection. So the system right now, we've got bins that handle 80 pounds and we can put a welded bottom in the bins to get up to 100, 100, 105 pounds. But, but the robots, yeah, they can carry 120 pounds all day. Uh, velocity. Um, that's an interesting one. And that's been an interesting problem. Um, they're designed to move three meters a second. And they can. Yeah, they can. No problem. Uh, but let's throw the button. This is where you start looking at complexity of some problems is ultra capacitors don't carry a stabilized voltage. Their voltage decreases linearly with, with the, the energy density in the cap bank. And velocity, or the speed of a motor, is a factor of voltage. Higher the voltage, higher the motor spins. So managing velocity means that we have to monitor cap bank voltages, make the velocity proportionate to the cap bank voltage with a safety margin, communicate that to the routing algorithm because now you have motor or robots that can move at different velocities. Um, and that's been an interesting um, evolution. I think, I think we can get, I think now like a robot on its first leg or a fully charged leg with a good safety margin can get about, you know, 3.5, 3.6 meters per second. We climb at 2.2 meters per second. But what I'll say is speed is not the thing that makes them go faster. <laughs> and no it's um it's how quickly we can transition them how quickly we can make a left turn or a right turn or or because that's where the bulk of the time is actually spent our solutions have such small footprints that that 
horizontal velocity ends up being a very, very small effect on overall system throughput. Because uh, we spend most of our time moving vertically past all the inventory. Interesting. And so, and then, and are you guys, this is your first, is this your first generation of them or there's been few generations of them? And, and are you, are you, you know, what's the next generation look like? You know, I've seen a lot of stuff in the news about solid state batteries and commercialization of those, and that may have an impact on, on what you do maybe as a storage solution. Well, solid state battery is an ultra capacitor. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. So, um, we're on, we are currently right now testing our, what we'll say is our first true commercial version of the robot, the five series. And Adabot 1.0 was built in a garage in Okotoks. 2.0 is sitting on a stand when you walk through reception. But the 2.0, the 3.0, and the 4.0 robots look remarkably similar. Got it. You know, they're, they're evolutions of the prototype. Uh, the 5.0 is a kind of the biggest departure um, we've seen from the original design. And uh, the geometry is still all the same. The functionalities are all the same. But I'll, I'll give you an example. The 3.0 robot, the chassis was 50, 50 separate pieces and 120 separate CNC operations. Um, the 5.0 chassis is, is one piece with two CNC operations. You know, we go from billet, plate aluminum, you know, fastened together with pins and, and bolts to, to now big die casting. And, um, we had 12, 12 motors in all of the robots to date. When we move into the, the five, we still have 12 motors, but they're configured entirely differently. Like we used to have one motor that moved, um, the dynamic drives, the, the wheels up and down. And, um, we'd have to sequence them mechanically. And now we have two separate motors that we sequence them electronically. So in some places we have fewer motors, in some places we have more motors. But the the reason being is we looked at all the stuff that either was a challenge to maintain or, you know, required tuning or tightening. Like, so we got rid of all the belts and pulleys. We, we got rid of um, anything that needed to be sequenced mechanically um, and, and just depended on the controller for electronic sequencing. And then we went to industry to find, find technologies to work as the actuators so we didn't have to use things like camshafts to actuate horizontal motion and stuff like that. So it was a big build to mostly just improve uh, reliability and decrease um, the amount of time we spent you know, servicing and maintaining the robots. Um, but the fact that we have you know, 300 prototypes out in the field, that's a testament to how quickly the market pulled us in. And, you know, we're just, we're just four years old and now we're finally reaching a commercialized state of the hardware, but it's been a pretty steep climb. It's been a race. It's been exciting. That's great. So talk about those prototypes. Talk about, you know, I, I think it was Nordstrom was one of the bigger companies that uh, partnered with you. And so mm -hmm. I'd love to know about the efficiency gains that are, that have been seen because of all this, you know, what, what are these companies seeing on the, on the real, the bottom line for their business? Um, after, before and after implementation. So our first pilot um, was actually with Gordon Food Services here in Calgary. And like that was such an amazing serendipitous opportunity. Now to understand the use of our technology, you got to understand, you know, their business. 
Gordon Food Services delivers foods to restaurants. So you order a case of um, case of potatoes, case of tomatoes, you know, case of prime rib, case of case of case of. Um, so their business is designed around taking pallets of of food and delivering them to the restaurant off your specific orders. So they call it mix mixed case pallet, you know, mixed case orders. But they also have a whole industry, a whole business unit that supports all of the utensils you need in, in a kitchen. Spatulas, wooden spoons, cake decorating nozzles, chainmail, chainmail gloves for the butcher, you know. So our technology in there now works as a vending machine for the people doing their order picking to pick all the single each items. So as they're building the pallet, they stop at our technology and they um, they put in they're they're scanning their list of what they need and the robots go get all of these things. So now this guy with a pallet isn't walking up and down an aisle to go grab one spoon, one cake decorating on waddle, you know, one water testing kit. Um, it all gets uh, grouped and takes to them. So we've taken some of the automation they had that was they were using for single item now and we freed it up for for caseload for them. Our technology, and this is a story that kind of it's been kind of typical is our technology allows our customers to do a lot more with what they already have. Uh, Nordstrom's first installation, it was a, it was a site in, in, in the Bay Area that sent apparel, a lot of men's suits, um, out to their stores and, uh, other things, of course, but it was like the main men's suit depot for kind of California. Putting our technology in turned it into their beauty e-com fulfillment solution now location for the west coast so it allowed them to take their their asset their real estate put and their staff and i think i think we i think they hired over 100 people to add to to do beauty fulfillment out of out of that facility the introduction of our technology has been kind of incremental with with these companies to to rethink all of their current asset and um our density and our increased functionality means we take up a small footprint, about you know twelve to fifteen percent of of what would be a comparable suite of technologies. So this this uh, has them avoiding having to go build a million, a million and a half square feet of new fulfillment centers. It's you look at your assets that you already have, and we start doing more with them. So that's that's been what we've seen so far to date. And there's another job we're working on right now. It's a big brand, you know, big corporate. Um, brand umbrella that has seven different retail brands and you know in in the city we're moving into they have seven different fulfillment centers one for each brand we're moving our technology in and we're putting all of those fulfillment centers now in one of one of seven buildings because we're going to bring all of those brands in to one automation system um, and do a multi-tenancy for them so once again it's can we do more with what you already have instead of going out and building, building new? And that's, that's really where we see our technology growing and driving that down now into other retail assets. And mostly it's the back room of the retail store. All right. By pushing, pushing their distribution, their supply chain infrastructure, their system actually into those retail assets, forward deploying more inventory, um, into into those footprints and and creating distributed supply chain infrastructure instead of centralized supply chain infrastructure, um, and that's without building building new. It's taking what you got and adjusting it for for the market in which we live. 
Cool. So, and then, and the solution itself obviously is, is, has global applications. It's not just, it's not just here in North America, it's in Canada or not, you know, Europe and, and Asia and everywhere you could, you could deploy it, but I'd be curious, you know, um, uh, your client base and sales efforts. Are you, are you kind of, is North America, you know, conquer North America and then go everywhere or where, where do you sit um, right now in that client base? Having a really clear, concise strategic plan for marketing and business development is new. I'll be honest with you there. We've brought in some great, great new team members that have brought come in from industry. Before we were just really, really busy and kind of just answering the phone. We didn't have a a really strategic marketing plan. We were just busy dealing with what we had. And that's a very fortunate position to be in. Yes. And now we start thinking about the world in the future and and we're just kind of decide, you know, we 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 focused on what Atabotics was originally founded for, discrete each item picking for e-com. The interesting thing that applies to consumer goods, certainly, but that also applies to grocery. So recently partnered with another Canadian firm, uh, FoodX out of Vancouver. FoodX is a fascinating kind of homegrown Calgary story, actually. Um, Spud.ca, you know, and uh, they've been doing grocery home delivery for 20 years. And the, the knowledge they have on grocery home delivery is massive. They took that, that information and converted it to a software platform. So they have, you know, best in class software for the grocery e-com industry and, and we have best in class automation for the grocery, grocery e-com industry. So we recently signed a, uh, a partnership here in Canada to bring that combined product to market where, and then on the e-com side is, is there's a lot of companies, integrators and software platforms out there that have done a great job with e-com. They just haven't had the best tools on the hardware side to work with. So we're excited about the developments there through you know, our channel partners and some of our direct sales. So that's kind of how we're looking at the North American market. But my life is so damn weird, dude. <laughs> like, I, you know, conversations with uh, Italian, you know, Italian people that work for French companies that have a really strong presence in Japan. You know, um, sheiks from the UAE um, had a, had a conversation with the the gentleman that that is considered the richest man in Japan about about how we can help their business. Lots of interest out of India and um, and Europe, of course. It's but if you look at the the, the kind of the world, Europe was the first to automate. North America is the country, North America is the area that needs now the automation. And then it's into those rapidly growing economies like India and China. There's going to be a growth opportunity. So thankfully, the problem we're solving isn't just a local one. Uh, the problem we're trying to solve is a global one because consumer behavior is shifting dramatically globally. And uh, you see that in, in the growth of, you know, the biggest, some of the biggest companies in the world, like Alibaba and Amazon. Right. So we're, we're bringing a platform forward to help make any retailer more competitive in the e-com space by making the cost of fulfillment lower and uh, in doing so, making the environmental footprint of fulfillment lower. And that's important. Yeah, that's a great initiative as well. 
I like that. So, but yeah, you, you got your sites, you got your sites set globally, which is which is fantastic to hear, especially for you know Calgary and Alberta, and you know we we need we need a company like yours to continue to grow here. So you know, and so on that note, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the tech scene here in Alberta. Mm-hmm. You know, I think many people are aware that I think it was the state of Nevada had approached uh, Adibotics and and tried to encourage you to relocate there at some point on some some incentive program and I'd li- I'd love to know about how, what all unfolded there and and what made you decide ultimately to stay here. Uh, yes. That's it. That was interesting. It's um we started looking for a place to put manufacturing. Right. You know, and all of our engineering had office, you know, everything's here in Calgary. And then we started looking at manufacturing and the US states are interesting how they are very, very competitive. So when you say competitive, you mean amongst one another or just industry. have competitive offering? Amongst one, one another. They they compete to get the company to, to set up shop in their state. Right. And so there's this big drive at the state and local level um, for incentives. Tax cuts, um, rebates on land, um, training stimulus for staff, like it depends on which state you're in, but there is a wide breadth of programs that exist at the state level in the U.S. Now, first I'll say I didn't want to move to Nevada. Sorry, you did or you didn't? You didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't, so. I didn't, didn't, I, I didn't want to put the company right. in Nevada. It's hard to justify that to a board of directors of investors. <laughs> when the delta, the tax delta, the operational delta, between being in Nevada, between being in Alberta, is at, at capacity is over a million dollars a year. Okay, and um, that was eye opening for me to see the incentives that were put in place. Now, this company was born in Calgary. I mentioned that we built our prototype prototype in a garage in Okotoks. I'm from Calgary. My life is here. I'm proud to be Calgarian. Um, and that's saying a lot considering your group just outside of Edmonton. So you got to take that with an extra little bit of oomph that's there. My life is here. My family's here. Um, I love, I love my country and I think I live in, in the best place in the world. Our provincial economy has been very centric to a few, historically just a few industries and a company like Atabotics is, is very, very small. Yes. potatoes compared to some of the big energy companies. And so that's shifting, thankfully. This is the attitudes around that are shifting. And I am fortunate and Atabotics is very, very fortunate to benefit from some of those shifting ideals. Um the reason they're shifting is the bottom fell out of the energy economy. So economic diversification, you know, is a huge topic right now. And um I'm glad that we have been able to take a lot of great talent in the energy sector and, and, and put it to, to the technology sector, you know, building robots. But the only kind of, the only reason it was ever viable to build a company here is, is because of the support locally, provincially, and federally. Calgary doesn't really have a tech investment ecosystem. They've got a lot of people that get together, talk about being a tech investment ecosystem, but I wouldn't really say there's a tech investment ecosystem here. So the way 
investors, local investors kind of manage that risk profile is, is in valuation. And so I honestly think that Canadian investors are the hardest on Canadian companies. And, and I don't, I've got a lot of theories around that. I don't know for sure, but I think we devalue ourselves more than anybody else does. Interesting. So the government programs make the difference that you can find local investment dollars because it's hard to go abroad for seed angel money, right? It's really, really hard. So the government programs help a lot in making the difference in, in managing dilution because you can get another 50 cents on the dollar or an extra dollar, you know, double your money with, with some of the granting programs. And, and those programs are designed to start a flywheel. And I think they're doing what they need to do. I've got some ideas on what they need to do next, though. And that is that it's easier because of these programs to start a business here now, certainly. But there isn't a lot of incentive to stay. And uh, we faced a big decision in our last funding round in the midst of COVID. You know, it, it got to be a hairy time. You know, it was very lots of uncertainty. We had started funding before COVID. Clock was ticking, borders were closed. We had to do something. And when I talked to all my Canadian advisors, they're like, oh, you should sell. Without exception, every single one of them was like, you should sell. You talk to my American advisors, they're like, oh no, we're just getting started. And I and I think that story is somewhat universal. The definition we have of a successful company here is someone who got a, you know, a $10 million, $30 million exit to Microsoft or Intel or somebody. <laughs> wow. You know, it's this, this exit of, you know, measured in millions, which is a huge success. Um, but I don't know why they think that someone south of the border can do it better. Why it's, it's, if you can get a sale, then that's success period versus building a business. Like I don't, I, I've never really fully understood that. I'm interested in building a, a business. Um, you know, not necessarily looking at a quick exit, but the attitudes are so different from one side to another. But I will say that I have been encouraged and supported. Antibiotics has been really supported locally, provincially, and federally to build a business here. And, you know, we got the OSIF grant, which is tied to the, the Nevada. By the way, uh, Ohio was another one on the list. Yeah, or Columbus, Ohio. And the OSIF grant does not cover the shortfall that we would see going to Nevada. Not even over a three-year period. But I want to build a business here. Ah. And I greatly, hugely appreciate the support the government has in realizing that that there's money to start businesses here, but we need to do more to create the incentive structures to keep them. Because it's the keeping of them here that develops not 100 people with tech experience, it develops 1,000 people with tech experience. Builds a bigger tax base, creates a, more of a flywheel. So the government isn't always the one that's feeding the flywheel. Now the flywheel can start becoming a self-supporting system like you saw that came out of Boston or Silicon Valley or even Austin, places like that now. And I want to be, I want to be part of, you know, part of putting energy into that flywheel. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to be here to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, and the, um, 
the comment about, you know, there's a lot of talk and maybe not as much walk happening. Do you think if the government continues to behave this way as they, as they have treated you, we can, we can change that and, and create a place where entrepreneurs are actually going to take bigger risks and, and stay here, like you say? I, I have been uh, pushing what I think is a, a change that's needed. Now, the first thing I'll say is entrepreneurs take their ideas to where they could get the money. Yeah, period, full stop. And I always use the, um, the story of um, oh, brain farting now. Garrett, which is last name. Started Garrett Camp. Garrett Camp. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> I haven't had my tea yet. <laughs> Garrett started, you know, he started a software company here in Calgary after being educated at USC and um, couldn't find a lot of support for it. Moved down to the valley, yeah. found money for it within a month, spun that company up, and then co founded Uber. And that is a story I think is kind of typical is we might do all the pieces we need to do except keep businesses here when it comes to tech because we don't have the ecosystem to support them. So my theory is, is like we've been benefit of huge programs, you know, IRAP has been hugely beneficial. The, the city has been hugely beneficial. Recently we, um, uh, strategic innovation fund federally has stepped in and, and they've, they've been a huge, huge benefit to us. Um, in ensuring that the IP and the talent stays being developed here in Canada. What I would like to see, if it were me making the rules, and it's not, is I would like to see government partner with industry uh, or uh, local investors, not industry, local investors, because there's a lot of capital here, but also with international investors. In the same way, if you think about a big architecture project, um, the bow is Sir Norman Foster from the UK, but local architects and local construction companies built the bow. The Peace Bridge, Santiago Calatrava, but there's still local architects, local construction companies that, 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 that contributed to building that bridge. And I think, though, some of the stuff that's missing in the city is the, the investor experience in tech because they have a breadth, massive breadth of experience in the energy sector. But tech is a little bit of a foreign animal. So can we have a lead investor that comes from one of the world-class global firms? Can we partner them with local investor and local investor capital and government capital to create a fund. Now, government money is always political. And I've seen both sides of it because we've been the recipient of it. Um, I can say that Atabotics is doing what the government intended that money for, which was to create economic diversity and jobs and talent here in the city. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part, absolutely. And I'm hugely grateful that, that we've been able to do that. And we'll continue to do that. But government money being political is usually spread around really nice and evenly. And nice and even doesn't create, create change. It doesn't create waves. I think that the, the tech community, the ecosystem here would be best served by a fund that not only had seed and, and early stage money, but also some growth capital um, allocated towards it that not only could see a business start, but grow with a business. And that fund should be a fund that's designed to be profitable because we should only be investing in companies that we think are going to be successful. But 
the people that I think should be the ones making the ultimate decisions on which companies to invest in are the most experienced people. And we're probably going to find that with, you know, some kind of global, global tech investor, just like we found global architects to start building. And, and we have local architects, of course. We, we, we do. But a new perspective and uh, a new level of experience, I think, would benefit everybody. Yeah, it's a nice analogy. And, and I think that system, but just like architecture, you design, you, you, you have a program and you get everyone to apply on how they're going to solve, solve the problem. It's a bidding process. And I think that bidding process can be done by, by world-class architecture firms because there's a perfect storm in the world right now. Is There's a mass exodus out of these places that have historically been strong for tech. Silicon Valley, Boston, it's because the world now is remote. So Calgary being top five places in the world to live, this is a place where we can really leverage that. We create it. We create a startup technology fund here that's got the backing support of global industry, local investors, and, and, and the government. I think we have a game changer that starts attracting and building on that flywheel. Nice. Yeah. And also on that same note, you know, you've commented about how you think we should approach it, what we should do and what you're doing, you know, doing your part to fulfill the requests of the government, I guess, you know, here's the, here's the funding and, and, you know, please deliver and help our help diversify and grow. And, you know, of course, the other thing that's within your control related to what you just mentioned is retaining the people, right? So we, we've got to, we've got to go, uh, you know, globally, or let's say North America is, is kind of the bigger question because time zones are still a bit of an issue, but the, the, the market is much, much more open in terms of talent, right? So you can still have some control internally on mm-hmm. your, your talent that you attract and that you retain and, you know, provide them mentorship and culture. And, and so I would just be curious to know a little bit about what you're doing at that part that you also have control to try and, you know, keep a stable business and, and develop that talent and retain it. I'll, I will be just transparent that you're running through COVID and, and surviving COVID was hard. It, 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 it was hard. Yep. And because of that uncertainty that there was a, you know, we lost, we lost a couple of good people because, you know, stock options don't pay your rent. You know, and it's interesting is that, you know, if you go, if you go down into some different markets, the options are all that 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 good talent care about, whereas Calgary doesn't have necessarily yeah. a history. So options to some people are a piece, a meaningless piece of paper that they don't understand. That think nothing's going to ever happen with. So finding that balance in compensation model is, has been a challenge. Um, once you create a bit of a name for yourself in the tech scene, you also end up all your people end up being the targets of uh, recruiters. And Calgary has a very strong tech scene right now there's a lot going on in the city there just isn't enough people in the city to do it yes so there's this kind of cannibalization of ourselves that we're doing as a as a community and i see it with you know some early funded some or some of the earlier funded companies are, are paying very attractive right now just to pull talent and and so we have to compete in that landscape certainly and I wish we could find a compensation package that that we were able to hit everybody's hot button. Because to be honest with you, I'd rather pay someone a hell of a lot higher salary and not give them any stock options because that's where all. <laughs> but I want people. But I want people invested. I want people to get their share of what we're building here. But options in a startup don't become real money until there's some kind of liquidity event 
which means an IPO or a sale. So it's who's willing to invest for you know their time for the the longer term, and um, managing that, managing those expectations has been interesting. But as you say, it's 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 a big world now, and the world's opened up. And part of our focus right now is to bring in some world class leadership that can build teams no matter where they are. We have stayed very very Calgary centric, not just with our staff but with our contractors. And um, as we grow and as the company moves forward and we are a company with certainly global potential, we're already, you know, we're already international, that, that we got to start thinking about an international team. But I will say that Calgary's heart and soul will always be here in Calgary. I like Autobotics heart and soul will always be here in Calgary. And, um, but we do have to work with the problem that every tech company has to work with is, and it's, it's universal is there's not enough developers to go around. There just isn't. Yep. So we have to, we have to be smart there. And the big part of what we're doing there is actually we're, we're re-engineering our product at the architecture level. So we can actually attract a bigger, bigger labor base and, um, make it, make it easier to work on where we all don't have to be in the same room. And um, that's in response to what really is the kind of the, the staffing ecosystem that exists out there now in the world. Great. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's an interesting challenge I see as well in my businesses. Yeah, the, everyone's clamoring for, for these tech people and they're hard to find. And um, so, you know, grabbing those, grabbing those people out of school as early as you can and getting them onboarded and working as if you, if you can, Leverage them is a great way to go, but it's a ch- it's a definitely a challenge in the tech sector in Alberta. So I know we're we've gone on quite a while here, and you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to take a whole lot more of it, so I want to you know as I always do in, in these interviews, I'll leave you leave you a, a chance to talk about anything else you want to um, before we finish off. Anything else I want to talk about? Wow, that's that's big. Um... <laughs> no, I. I guess I want to say, you know, like we're, we're, Atabotics is fortunate, really, really, really fortunate um, in a lot of ways. Um, great people, great support, great opportunity. COVID, COVID has decimated industries. It's, it's put huge, huge challenges into people's lives. I'm very grateful that that coming out of COVID, what we chose to start to do is is in need. Um, but that isn't the same for everybody. And I, and I think I think it's important, and I want to bring this full circle about why I love living in this country is, is we give a shit about each other. And there are there are companies there are people that are benefiting from what's happened in the world and there are people that are that have really been hurt and really struggling because of what's happening in the world and the more we can do to support our communities the more we can do to support each other the more we can do to think differently and help get everybody's feet back underneath them and this is i think is important and i'm going to continue doing everything i can to do that um, but just at a kind of a, you know, a, a personal level, we can't, we can't even smile at anybody anymore. Yeah, it hurts. To give that, that gift to a stranger, but I guess I would say is, is whatever you can do, 
to make somebody's day just a little bit better, I just encourage you to do it. Thank you, Scott. Those are nice, nice words to end it at. I really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Stay safe. Wash your hands, okay? Thank you. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.